0: Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you.
1: Have you found the one you're looking for yet?
0: Not quite.
1: How about this one?
0: That's a bowler and it's really more sorted, suited for you than me. and honestly it's not really suited for you.
1: Fair enough. How about
0: this? <laughs> Newsboy caps don't particularly suit me. And besides, we are going to a pub after this. All right.
1: How about this one, Milady?
0: What is this 1910? Why do you need a top hat?
1: Just thought I'd be more regal.
0: (laughs) No, I'm looking for a nice black hat that I can wear every day around the city.
1: And I'm just looking around city hats here for the perfect hat to accompany you. Like this.
0: (laughs) Okay, very few men in this day and age can pull off a boater's hat. And I love you, but you're not one of them, my curly-haired husband.
1: Then back to the right side go!
0: everyone, and welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez.
1: Today, we're going to be discussing the raucous show, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder.
0: So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting.
1: Hello, everyone. And welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. We have a very important question to answer. Why are all the dice dying? And for that, we must delve into this week's episode, where we will be discussing the hilarious show, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder.
0: The knockabout comedy had audiences roaring and guffawing with its tongue-in-cheek humor and classic melodramatic comedy a show truly hearkening back to the early days of the musical.
1: But before we can begin to solve our mystery, we must first lay out our evidence in the groundwork.
0: A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder premiered at the Hartford stage, Hartford, Connecticut, running in October and November of 2012 with direction by Darko Tresnak. Tresjak. The cast featured Jefferson Mays, Ken Barnett, and Lisa O'Hare. The show was a co-production of the Hartford Stage and the Old Globe Theater.
1: The musical then played at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego, California in March of 2013. Directed by Tresnek, the cast again featured Mays, Barnett, and O'Hare.
0: This is the perfect time to introduce our design team.
1: Book and lyrics by Robert L. Friedman, Music, Lyrics, and Vocal Arrangements by Steven Lutvac. Based on the novel by Roy Horniman. Directed by uh, Darko Trezdeck. Choreographed by Peggy Hickey. Scenic designer Alexander Dodge. Costume designer Linda Cho. Lighting designer Philip S. Rosenberg. Sound designer Dan Moses Schreier. Projection design Aaron Rhine. Hair and wig design, Charles G. LaPointe, and makeup designer, Brian Strumwasser.
0: The show would open at the Walter Kerr Theater on November 17, 2013, where it would stay for a little over two years and 905 performances, closing on January 17, 2016.
1: That season, it would garner 10 Tony Award nominations, and that evening, leave with four. Best Book of a Musical for Robert L. Friedman, Best Direction of a Musical for Darko Tresnik, Best Costume Design of a Musical for Linda Cho, and Best Musical.
0: So, let's investigate this comedic and morbid tale. I've got a smile, a wonderful smile, and a certain little wave, and every time the boys get near me, A group
1: dressed in morning clothes enter and advise those of you of weaker constitution to leave the theater as the show may prove disturbing.
0: The official show starts in 1909 with Lord Montague Monty Dice with Navarro, ninth Earl of Highhurst, sitting in his jail cell. He says that he is writing his memoirs on the eve of his possible execution, and that his story could be called A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. His story begins. In 1907,
1: Monty is living in a shabby Clapham flat, and his mother, a washerwoman, has just died. Miss Marietta Shingle, a mysterious old woman, arrives to tell Monty that his mother was, in fact, a member of the aristocratic disquith family
0: isabel Dysquith had eloped with a spanish musician who is now deceased which caused her family to disown her wishing to spare her son any shame isabel never told him the truth of his ancestry
1: now Miss shingle says monty is ninth in line to inherit the earldom of highhurst she insists that he take his rightful place in the family Monty writes a letter to Lord Asquith Dysquith, Sr., the head of the Dysquith family banking house, explaining his connection to the family and inquiring if there might be a job available for him.
0: Monty is in love with Miss Sibella Howard, but she will not marry him due to his poverty. Sibella has also drawn the attention of another gentleman of higher status, Lionel Holland, She dubiously accepts Monty's story about his lineage, but remarks that eight people would have to die in order for him to become Earl.
1: Monty receives a reply from Lord Asquith's son, Asquith Dysquith Jr., denying Isabel's existence and warning Monty against contacting the family again or using their name. Monty is dejected, but refuses to accept his apparent destiny as a poor commoner.
0: He takes a tour of Highhurst Castle at the Dysquith's ancestral home on Visitor's Day, where the spirits of his Dysquith ancestors admonish him that he does not belong there. Lord Adalbert Dysquith, the current Earl of Highhurst, catches Monty looking around the ancestral library and drives him out, expressing his disdain for commoners flooding his home.
1: Monty decides to try his luck with the clergymen in the family, a dithering old man named the Reverend Lord Ezekiel Dysquith. Ezekiel gives Monty a tour of the ancestral family church. He remembers Isabel as a charming girl who broke her father's heart, but refuses to advocate on Monty's behalf, believing that it is best to avoid family intrigue.
0: Monty and Ezekiel ascend the bell tower where Ezekiel nearly loses his balance. Thanks to a gusty wind and his own inebriation. Monty realizes how easy it would be to let Ezekiel fall, exacting revenge for his mother and bringing him one step closer to the earldom. Rather than assisting Ezekiel to safety, Monty lets him fall to his death.
1: Monty returns to his dead-end job as a clerk, frustrated that he toils away while unworthy men grow rich, including Asquith Dysquith Jr. He observes Asquith Jr. and his mistress, Miss evangeline Barley, a recent Floridora girl, steal away to a winter resort. Monty follows them with the intention of poisoning Asquith Jr., but is unable to get close enough to deliver the poison.
0: Asquith Jr. and Miss Barley go ice skating on a frozen lake and Monty is struck by inspiration. He cuts a hole in the ice, and the skaters fall through and drown.
1: Monty returns to London and receives a letter from Lord Asquith Dysquith Sr., apologizing for the tone of his son's letter and inviting Monty to the bank to speak about a job. He is grief-stricken by his son's death in the skating accident and offers Monty a comfortable salary and a job as a stockbroker. Monty accepts.
0: Sibella informs Monty that she is engaged to marry Lionel Holland. Upon learning of Monty's new position and income, she begins to reconsider, but forces herself to go through with marrying Lionel.
1: Monty now fixes on his distant cousin Henry Dysquith, a country squire. He encounters Henry in a town pub and rescues him from an assault by a foreclosed-on tenant. Henry is married but clearly prefers the company of men. Monty picks up on this and befriends him.
0: Henry is also an avid beekeeper and tells Monty that a person can be killed in an excess of bee stings. Monty obtains a bottle of lavender perfume to which the bees are extraordinarily attracted to.
1: At the Dysquith Country Estate in Salisbury, Monty douses Henry's beekeeping clothes with the lavender and introduces himself to Henry's sister, Miss Phoebe Dysquith.
0: As she and Monty discover their similarities, Henry is stung to death.
1: Monty consoles Phoebe and concludes that since he cannot be with Sabella, she would be the perfect woman to be the Countess when he becomes Earl. As a woman of his own generation, she does not stand before him in the line of succession and is highly sympathetic to the plight of his mother.
0: There are other women who do come before Monty in the lineage, including Lady Hyacinth Dysquith, an unmarried woman of a certain age, who devotes herself to philanthropic causes, primarily with the aim of bolstering her own social position.
1: Posing as a member of the Foreign Office, Monty encourages Lady Hyacinth to travel first to war-torn Egypt, then to a leper colony in India in order to dispose of her. She returns unharmed both times before Monty sends her to an African jungle where a cannibal tribe lives. Lady Hyacinth is reported missing and presumed dead.
0: Monty proves a talented stockbroker, securing a significant salary increase and praise from Lord Asquith Dysquith Senior. His romance with Sibella continues despite her marriage And it is clear that she is impressed by Monty's determination to succeed.
1: Monty's next target is Major Lord Bartholomew Dysquith, a staunch eugenicist, vegetarian, and bodybuilder. Monty encounters Lord Bartholomew at a weightlifting hall and charms his way into acting as the major spotter on the bench press apparatus. Pretending to misunderstand his cries for help, Monty adds more weight than Bartholomew can hold and then allows the barbell to fall and decapitate him.
0: Monty continues to console Phoebe, actions that during her period of mourning for her brother have endeared him to her greatly.
1: Lady Salome Dysquith Pumphrey is an appallingly bad actress, currently starring in a production of Heinrich Ibsen's Hedda Gabler. Remembering that the play ends with Hedda's suicide by a pistol shot to the head, Monty sneaks backstage and loads the prop gun with real bullets. Lady Salome shoots herself and dies to the shock of her fellow actors and the approval of the audience.
0: The deaths of Reverend Lord Ezekiel, Asquith Jr., Henry, Lady Hyacinth, Major Lord Bartholomew, and Lady Salome have... Now leave only two people in the way, the present Earl and Lord Asquith Senior, Monty's employer and benefactor.
1: Monty is suddenly conflicted, finding he has no desire to murder the kindly Lord Asquith, but is let off the hook when the old man suddenly succumbs to a heart attack.
0: As Lord Adalbert realizes that he himself is the only Dysquith still alive, All of London is abuzz over the dashing gentleman who's risen so far, so fast, and now stands next in line to inherit Highhurst.
1: Post-interval, the curtain rises on Lord Asquith Sr.'s funeral. Monty delivers a stirring eulogy, but the assembled mourners are irritated at the endless string of Dysquith memorials they are compelled to attend. Lord Adalbert worries that the curse that has fallen upon his family may strike him next.
0: Monty and Sibella continue their affair. He continues to love her despite his awareness of her flaws. Sibella says that while she is unhappy with Lionel, she doesn't necessarily regret marrying for self-interest and wouldn't begrudge Monty for doing the same.
1: However, she would forbid him to marry for love. She also asks if Monty can secure Lionel an invitation to Highhurst, as he has political aspirations. Phoebe unexpectedly arrives, and Sibella hides in the next room. Phoebe declares her intention to marry Monty, even if the dice would look down on them. Monty accepts, but knows he, he is caught both figuratively and literally between the two women.
0: Monty is shocked to discover that Lady Hyacinth has survived her encounter with the cannibals and is returning to London. As she disembarks the ship, Monty uses an axe to cut the supports of the gangplank. It collapses and she drowns in the harbor.
1: Monty, Phoebe, Sibella, and Lionel are all invited to Highhurst for the weekend so that Lord Adelbert can meet his heir. Monty and Phoebe arrive first and meet the Earl and his wife, Lady Eugenia Dysquith. The spirits of the Dysquith ancestors again warn Monty against presuming above his station.
0: The long-brewing enmity between Lord Adalbert and Lady Eugenia is evident, and Adalbert makes several crass remarks about the scandal caused by Monty's mother. He and Monty head off to look at some of the weapons that killed our ancestors, as Sibella arrives without Lionel, who is being detained at Newmarket.
1: Phoebe and Monty's engagement is news to Sibella. She begs him to break it off and declares that she loves him. Although he still loves her, he angrily says that it is too late for her to claim ownership of him and that he will proceed with marrying Phoebe.
0: At dinner, a truly awful meal is served, and Lord Adelbert and Lady Eugenia bicker constantly. Monty has brought along poison, intending to slip it into Adelbert's food, but cannot do so unnoticed. Miss Shingle, who initially brought Monty the news of his true lineage, appears. It turns out that she has been employed as a servant by the Dysquist for 39 years.
1: At last, Monty slips poison into Lord Adalbert's dessert, but to his horror, the Earl refuses it, insisting Sibella eat it instead. Monty desperately knocks it to the floor. Lord Adalbert starts to tell the story of how he was betrayed by his valet during the Boer War.
0: He gives Monty his loaded army rifle and demands that he play the part of the valet, ordering Monty to aim the gun at him. Monty cannot bring himself to shoot the earl and lowers the gun. His opportunity lost. Lord Adalbert takes a drink and, to Monty's surprise, suddenly drops dead.
1: With Lord Adalbert's death, Monty is now Lord Montague Dysquith Navarro, ninth earl of Highhurst. He and Phoebe marry soon after, however, at the wedding reception... Chief Inspector Pinkery of Scotland Yard arrests him for the murder of Lord Adelbert, who, it has been discovered, was poisoned. Monty remarks on the absurdity of being charged with the one murder he didn't actually commit.
0: A trial is held before the House of Lords, and evidence is given to both implicate and exculpate Monty. Sabella testifies on Monty's behalf, but in a fit of passion gives evidence that bolsters the persecution's alleged motive for the crime, that the Dysquiths disinherited his mother and denied his existence.
1: On the evening before the jury is to render judgment, Monty is writing his memoirs in his cell and strikes up a conversation with the jail's custodian, Chauncey. It turns out that Chauncey is a Dysquith too, his father having been a black sheep of the family, cast out in a manner similar to Isabel.
0: Chauncey says that he doesn't mind not having been acknowledged. He has none of the advantages of the Dysquiths, but none of their troubles either. Moved by the encounter, Monty shakes the hand of his last remaining relation.
1: Convinced of Monty's innocence, Phoebe visits him in jail. They conclude that an unseen providence is watching over him. But Phoebe has one important question to ask him. Is Sibella in love with him? She takes his silence as an answer and departs. Monty concludes his memoir, saying that the outcome will be revealed in the morning with the jury's verdict.
0: Sibella arrives at jail with a letter, purportedly from Phoebe, and addressed to Monty, confessing to poisoning the Earl so that Monty could take his rightful place. Phoebe returns to the jail with another letter, this one apparently from Sibella, and also addressed to Monty, confessing the same thing. Both women plead for the other to be arrested, and Monty set free.
1: The authorities decided that both women appear equally culpable, and they can't convict one woman if they believe the other one guilty. Phoebe and Sibella have also provided reasonable doubt as to Monty's guilt. It becomes apparent to the audience that the two women have thus conspired to prevent Monty's conviction and execution.
0: Monty is awakened and, to his great surprise, set free. Cheering crowds greet him outside. Phoebe and Sabella are there, evidently content to share him between them. Monty suddenly realizes that he's left his memoirs, which contain a full confession in his cell. However, a guard hands Monty the journal, saying he found it and thought Monty might need it.
1: Reeling from this one last stroke of luck, Monty wonders who poisoned the Earl if he didn't. Miss Shingle appears and confesses to the audience that it was she who slipped prussic acid into the Earl's port.
0: In the final moments of the show, the company sings, This is not the end, and Chauncey appears, holding a small bottle of poison, singing Poison in my pocket, implying that he will use it on Monty.
1: After the curtain call, Monty hands Chauncey a poisonous belladonna flower, Chauncey eats it, grimaces, and exits the stage.
0: The e. end. Tragedy, the... melody, full of originality. The folks who live in sunny Spain Dance to a strand They call the Spanish Angle Dukes and lords and Russians' are Men who own their
1: motor cars Throw up their shoulders that
0: full of originality.
1: So now let's talk about the show. Parts we liked, parts we didn't, and all that jazz.
0: So I remember fully not being excited to go to the show at the beginning because I had just seen the aesthetic and I had just seen the Tony's performance. And I'm like, I mean, it looks good, but it's not really my kind of show. Now, that all changed the moment I saw it.
1: Yes. I found the show to be very charming and humorous, uh, funny and enjoyable. It reminded me of a morbid, funny, like modern Gilbert and Sullivan show. Yeah, it's... it was very old school musical theater, just like British, like I can, every time I hear the show's title, all I can think of is a song. I am standing here with poison in my pocket. Like that is just totally or, it's better with a man.
0: I know. Well, and that's... this. The show has so many earworms. The show is... It's just so clever and refreshing, especially the time it came out because there was a lot of, like, everything was about edgy, new. What new direction can we go? And instead, this show said, we're going to harken back but give you a fresh new story that's actually an old story. And it just totally worked.
1: Yes, I completely agree. Um, the other thing that I loved about it um, was it was a clever story and a really clever presentation, the way it was done. Oh, yeah. Again, going back to that old-school Gilbert and Sullivan way, the way the stage was built and everything, it had that like almost vaudevillian style yeah. with the like clamshell lights, footlights, and mm-hmm. the wooden floorboards and everything like that.
0: Well, and they used every moment the audience was inside the theater to tell stories like to tell the story um from the moment you entered in there was a a vibe and then the way that the show starts and then with having that little tidbit at the end of the story um after bows they used every part that the audience could enjoy
1: yes you the show started from the minute you walked in to the minute you left um and I just want to say, Jefferson Mays is a comedic genius.
0: Oh my gosh. I can't believe he didn't win the Tony.
1: Well, the person who won the Tony this year was Neil Patrick Harris for Hedwig. So, you had these two huge characters.
0: Two very different.
1: Yeah, battling out. But the fact that the number of characters that Jefferson created that were similar but different.
0: Nine characters in total. was
1: brilliant. But again, similar but different. It was fantastic. So, let us go into our boxes boxes, boxes, opening the boxes. Okay, starting with the set. I loved how detailed but also classic this, the set was. Again, it reminded me very much of that old LaVillian thing because it felt, what was great was it was like a stage on a stage.
0: Mm-hmm. So we
1: had the Walter Kerr proscenium, but then they built like a separate proscenium to present the story in.
0: Right, because it's a story within a story within a
1: story. Well, I can't remember what that word is. where It's like within a within a within a...
0: Oh, I can't remember either right now.
1: But. All I can think of is a burrito, and that's not it. <laughs> but a
0: burrito is a lot. It's of not things. a
1: turducken either. <laughs> but it is that time of year. <clears throat> um, the show for me, or the set, harkened back to like the vaudeville, Ziegfeld times. I've already mentioned those clamshell footlights, but even just like the simple details about like the curtains on the 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 faux proscenium, mm-hmm. or when they would. Um, um even the gimmicks of the set where they were like out in the the lake ice skating mm-hmm. and it, you could clearly see it was almost like a cardboard cutout to be snow
0: yeah and then they would like yes.
1: skate and they'd fall back and you'd see snow but it was like white confetti and you knew there was just somewhere back there that would just take it and go like throw it up be like whoosh snow <laughs> and, and though the show hadn't premiered yet it was very the play that goes wrong where it was like snow you know, it was not, it's like low budget almost. Community it, theater in the best way. Yes,
0: it just was that very, like, at this <laughs> point I even want to say, like, it is, it is a, a heightened version of what vaudeville and, like, Victorian theater used to be like.
1: Yeah, the, when we were doing the B scene, um, we're just on the chair. It's mm-hmm. just a, a chair swing. That's all it is. You know, mm-hmm. we didn't. They didn't build these elaborate sets for a musical. That's what made this show so great. Is everything was just so simple, and we, the audience, we were finishing the sentences and creating the elaborate world that that we might want to have in it. It was like panels from a comic strip.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so, moving on with costumes, the costumes were beautiful and they were classic.
0: They were fully realized for every single one of the dice quiz.
1: Yes. Um, the the there were obviously the two ingenues that had beautiful mm-hmm. costumes, the dresses, and at one point the undergarments, mm-hmm. which was amazing. You had Sabella in these gorgeous like pinks and roses and that, and then you had um we were just talking about her, Phoebe,
0: mm-hmm. in
1: these blues, and you know. Lights and, and,
0: and, and pure
1: Right, and it was just gorgeous to see that balance. But then you flip it over there, because to me the real winner of the costumes was all the dice quiz.
0: Well, Anne, not only did the costumes have to look a certain way, but they had to be engineered and created so that they were quick rigged, so that they could do costume changes quickly.
1: Right, and what I loved is... it, It... I don't know. It was a mix of Jefferson's personality and the costumes of all these different people. Like, if you look at a, a pictures of all the different Dice Quiz, Jefferson's eyes are the the um, the through line. Mm-hmm. They all have Jefferson's eyes. And after that, that's where, like, it stops. Yep. And I, it's kind of like, is it the costume or is it Jefferson? They all had different isms, you know? Mm-hmm. Whether it was the shaking with the... The priest, you know, or Hyacinth with her bustiness and her, like, arrogance walking around. Well, and you
0: can tell tell that each of the characters came from a different part on his body uh-huh. and you could tell that the costume designer took that into account yes. and enhanced those features depending on where he played the character from.
1: One of the ones that stuck out to me was, um, who was the one that Okay, was it the last guy in the safari hat with the fake muscles?
0: Oh, Major Bartholomew? Yeah,
1: okay, so that wasn't the last one. That's, okay. Yeah. But what I loved about that was, so his outfit looked like a Halloween costume. Because it was that cheesy, like, Coney Island Well, we're also
0: like, we know that it's the same guy. Well, but (laughs) but just the
1: way they didn't build the costume to look real. Mm-hmm. It was totally, like, and that's that's why I think it's like that vaudevillian kind of thing. Because maybe a hundred years ago, that would pass for believable almost kind of thing, right? Now with all the Technical technology up. stuff, we'd see that and go, wow, come on, we can do better than that. But because of the style of the show and that, that is exactly what well, we expected. If, it, if they had done something to make it look real, it wouldn't have played as well. So the fact that he comes out with this... This snidely whiplash mustache and this um, safari hat and then you have this ridiculous puffed up chest and these clearly fake biceps and he's just walking around like you know on steroids kind of thing <laughs> and you're just like what? What?
0: Well and that's what I love that's what I think about the brilliance of this costume design is is it had to be believable yet fake all in the same go, and so to be able to walk that line of of um, believability um, is just brilliant. I there's just so much about this costume design that was so brilliant, and between the hair and all the mustaches, all the chops, all yep. the beard, it just
1: well, and and everybody in the show had like legit costumes for the period. And then Jefferson was just like going backstage to the trunks and throwing stuff together and being like, does this work? You know? Because <laughs> yeah, everybody else's costumes looked real, like, you know.
0: But they all fit in the same world. Right. But
1: I just, I found it so funny because I feel like Jefferson literally just showed up to rehearsal and was like, this is the character now. Like, I felt like it was Gene Belcher in, in one of those moments. This is me now. This is me now. You know? Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I'm living for this. I, you know, I, every night, every night I feel like he might have found something more backstage and been like, yeah, this is more. I need this. And now I need this. Oh my gosh, I saw this on the way to the theater and now this is part of this character. You know, and nobody can question it because if anybody else did that in the show, it wouldn't work. But all of the dice quiz could get away with this. And it was hilarious. The only toned down person was Chauncey. And but even because Chauncey, like, the fact that Shauncey was in like this blue coverall thing, you were like, hmm. And you could just tell that that was waiting to explode, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, it was that oh.
0: Well, it's yeah, there's so many things I could say.
1: It, this we could write a masterclass on the show. It's it's one of this is one of those shows that again from afar it can look very simple but when you start breaking it apart the
0: it's very
1: smart and it's and very... everyone
0: had to be on the same page to make it work
1: yeah it it doesn't do it, it doesn't do if you overdo it and it doesn't do if you underdo it it has to be right at the certain it's like uh, uh, what is it called from Back to the Future the car the DeLorean mm-hmm. has hit a certain speed it has to be at a certain sweet spot
0: can't be too fast can't be too slow it has uh-huh. to be just right and it's beautiful
1: so I want to move on to the lights. Uh, once again, vaudevillian to me. I'm not mm-hmm. gonna say it, but I'm gonna say it. The clamshell lights. But you just the lighting in general felt vaudevillian, where it was um, those warm, like well, the soft white yellow kind of lights. It
0: looks like it's being lit by flame.
1: Right. It's not sepia tone per se, but it's no. it's just this warm glow from
0: mm-hmm. the
1: show, um, and then it also kind of reflected. Um, the different lo- the colors that were used reflected the different locations. So there was a little bit of blue when we were on the ice pond. There was a little bit of green when we were out with the bees. When we were in the bell tower. There's a little bit of gray because we were in the sky. You know, mm-hmm. there was green when uh, Lady Hyacinth was talking about well, the different and adventures not,
0: and being able to walk that line of showing of allowing shadows to exist while still maintaining that people can be seen. Yes. And I, I love when lighting designers allow for shadows in a in a comedy. Yes. Because it can be really hard to have shadows in a comedy. Because when you think of shadows, you don't think of funny. The other
1: thing I would say is if there was a constant color, believe it or not, it's orange. Yeah. Which works for the show because orange is a primary thing. But there's a tinge of orange in a lot of this. Just a subtle tinge. And I want to say one more thing about the lights which was it was a very clever use of projections to act as the title cards as if it was a vaudeville show. So if you can imagine in a vaudeville show you had that stand on the side that would have the the card you know the placard with who's performing Mm -hmm. and they would just pull it off as the next act would go. Mm -hmm. They would do that on, on the back of the stage with a projector where they would
0: change a scene Go and then and it's, interrupt it's, the
1: next person and it would be like Da-da, and it would be in that font and everything and well it and was it's like, kind
0: of like that silent movie font too yes
1: yes exactly and so you were like and, and for, for you and I and this is just for you and I you know because I'm a thousand years old and you're only young <laughs> I don't know how to flatter us and say you're 20 something and then you'd say no I'm 30 something so look I love you but I'm old I'm I'm Methuselah we haven't seen a show like this that was structured like this. That 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 the scene that comes to my mind is, you know, in clue when they're wrapping it up, here's what could have happened. That's kind of how I felt as we were going through all these different murders. But then this is what happened, you know, and we kill the next person. Do, 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 you know? And I thought, how clever is that? I've never seen a show that every essentially act or every scene that's being chomped apart for us like we're like reading the book and so it's being shown up on the screen for us is everybody's murder that's so clever usually we just it's a straight line you don't know where the breaks are except for intermission that's act one and two so I thought that was really smart they didn't try to hide things I mean, the, the beauty of this and that, this kind of leads us into the direction box but the beauty of this is they didn't try to cover the faults. Mm-hmm. The imperfections are what made the show really great. That's what sold it. We wanted the imperfections. We wanted to see the, the laughter, the breaks, the hee hees, the ha ha's. Um, comedy is in timing. So, especially um, uh, I've Decided to Marry You, that scene where you've got Sibella on one end of the door, Phoebe on the other, Monty's. Uh, in the middle, you know, Mm -hmm. that comedy timing has to work perfectly. We have, because it works with the music and the door slamming and we have to get all of that right. But in other moments when there's like this great dialogue and this is, this is Jefferson's bread and butter. Okay. Uh, I've seen it here. I've seen it in Music Man now. Uh, I've seen it in clips from Cyrano uh, not so much in Oslo because it was a drama. I mean, it said to see Chris as Carol if he brings any humor into it. Oh, he does. Oh, good. Because this is this is Jefferson's bread and butter. He gets comedy. And it is hard to break Jefferson, but not the other way around. Because not only can he break someone with the face, he can break them with a way he delivers a line with an accent or a stunner. Or a movement.
0: Or the way he interprets how to say words.
1: Exactly. And it kills me. It absol- So I would sit there and I'm watching Jefferson Mays and Bryce Pinkerton up there. And I'm just like, oh, Bryce, you poor soul. Because <laughs> you he's the straight character in this. Clearly Jefferson is the funny guy. And I'm like, you can't break. And you knew that Jefferson's like, I will break you. <laughs> in the in the best and most subtle way and you can't break. And when he would break, we were living for it. This was a show that we were meant to find the faults and enjoy them. Not to critique them and be like, boy, it really bothered me that they broke character. Hmm. You know, or, boy, they sure weren't, weren't polished with that.
0: No. It, it's <laughs> like, we as the audience are breaking and we just want the straight character to break. Yes. it's How do you
1: not laugh at all of them? <laughs> I mean... I, I keep going back to the ice scene. I remember it took forever for him to drown and die. And he kept cutting Bryce off. Uh-huh. He kept doing this... And Bryce is going to deliver his line. And, go, and I was like, yes, he gets it. That's funny. <laughs> so leading in, like I said, to direction, it was absolutely brilliant because you have to understand that comedy of how far to let the actor's... You know, go off the leash, but when to ring them in? Yes. You know, because you can't let it be too chaotic. You know.
0: Yeah, because you don't want it to move into pimping. Right,
1: right, right. Which is basically where you're going. For, you're you're trying to get the other actor to let you tell a joke. That an improv that's called pimping. You don't tell jokes in improv. That's stand up, not improv. So don't have someone on stage set you up for a joke. And and no, but you 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 don't want it to be c- complete chaos. But you need to let things organically happen. And so a director who understands comedy will understand that and is able to keep that all together. Um, I thought the pacing of the overall show was really amazing and it paired perfectly with that comedic timing. You also have to make sure we don't get hung up on one bit because when we start to do a bit like the drowning, the show has stopped. We have to make sure that we don't hang on to that one bit forever. And then have to keep going. It's okay to stop, but it's like a breath. We have to keep going. And so this director totally got...
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and one of the most brilliant parts of that um, is Lady Hyacinth.
1: Yes. Because
0: Lady Hyacinth, she goes and she survives. She goes and she survives. She goes and she dies. But she
1: survives.
0: And we get that recall.
1: It's the rule of three executed brilliantly. And well, see that, that is the brilliance of the writing. Yes. To understand the rule of 3, but in comedy, the rule of 3 is never do a joke or repeat a joke more than three t- or a bit more than three times. After three times, it's done.
0: Unless you're going to recall it, but it has to be recalled right.
1: Right. But but to me this is not a recall. This is a a, a joke of 3. This was just delayed. Mm-hmm. You know, and but it's done brilliantly. And every time she comes back, it's heightened a little bit more. So it's not the quick, fast where we can do the same monotone thing in three. She goes, she comes back. She goes, she comes back. She goes, she comes back. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. brilliant. So the comedy was ever present in the show. The gimmicks were all present in the show. and They were perfectly executed. We talked about the rule three, which was brilliant. The physical and the sound gimmick is, is another one, but the chattering of the teeth. When they freeze to death. And you hear that chattering of the teeth. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. That meme. Incredible. And the gag gimmick um, as well. Like with the hunter who dies. Uh, the the I was talking about him with the muscles. Bartholomew? Yeah. He dies from. Um,
0: Getting crushed by the weight.
1: Yep. I mean that. That is just hilarious. You know. Um, and because he comes back and then he dies. And he comes back, and then he dies. Again, rule of three. So the comedy is just chef's kiss. It's so good. If you were studying comedy, and truly, comedy is something either you're born with or you're not. You can learn comedy and understand it. It's the execution that is hard. Not everyone has that gift of timing. But this is a show we're studying to understand the timing and the appropriate execution of comedy. How does the timing execute the rules of comedy? And how does it like This is just smart writing and execution. Um, and then speaking of writing, let's talk about the music.
0: Yes, the music it sounds so classic, yet fresh.
1: Yeah, so to me, yeah, it, it harkened back to the Patter songs of Gilbert and Sullivan. That was one thing that really amazed me when I saw this come out. It's a new musical, but all the music sounds dated in the best way. Yes. And I was like, how interesting. How interesting. And also, how smart.
0: Well, and here's, here's the thing, because normally, I mean, in this day and age, you're going to hear people say like keeping things short and sweet is going to be the way to get them to ident- like get people to remember them. So like having a song that has like a key word or a small key phrase, don't keep it too big. You know, that's going to be the key to getting people to remember it. But in a show like this one, not only do we have a mouthful of a name, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, but we also have these songs that have big titles and big themes and long phrases. That get stuck in your head. Like, for example, I am standing by with poison in my pocket. Yeah. You know, you can shorten it to poison in your pocket, but if you know the song, you're going to go, I am standing by with poison in my pocket. Yet it still is rememberable. It breaks that rule of keeping it short and sweet. It's like, no, no, no. We're going to give you a full course meal, and it's going to get stuck in your head. Or like, I've decided to marry you. Like, it's not short and sweet. It's long and meaty, and you're still... It doesn't have any of the modern
1: orchestration sounds. It doesn't have any of the poppy sounds. Um, And even the opening number doesn't hit you like oomph. Like it starts, ba dump, ba dump. Please take notice. And they're all mourning, and you're like, what are we doing? It is not a big um, hurrah opening number for a show. But again, it's a smart, like, you know, when they say this is a love letter to the theater, this is a love letter to the theater. In its music, because 100 years ago, that is an opening number. That yeah. is totally an opening number.
0: And we would find it dated and boring and dull these days. But this show was able to take it and make it...
1: It's the words. It's those relevant. clever lyrics. And it's the... Praf- if this was a drama, it would not have worked. Because it's a comedy. It's smart. And it's tapping into those things that we, we like patterns. We like the c- clever alliteration of it, you know? It really tapped into that, and you mimic that with the humor and, and the gimmicks. It worked really well. But, um, like I said, the clever wordplay and the clever music, it just got stuck in your head in these hilarious uh, lyrics. I don't understand the pull. You know, what? Why are we doing You know, why would you write a song about that? Um, it's so smart. That's what I appreciated. The most about this music is... It's smart. I remember leaving and just being like, that was smart. And not everyone's going to like leave and be like, oh yes, Gilbert and Sullivan. And that's Mm -hmm. fine. We have degrees in theater. We damn well better know this. But I just left and I went, that was smart.
0: It's smart. It's witty. It's... um, There was another word I wanted to use, but I can't think of it now. Um, But it... (sighs) It's it, smitty. it knew the word. I mean, it knew the rules and it knew exactly how to break them.
1: Yes, yes. Um, the final box I want to hit real quick is the choreography, which there wasn't a ton of, but there was some. It was simple. There were no huge dance numbers, but it all was complementary to the music and the text,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and it emphasized that physical comedy wonderfully when there was choreography. For the most part, it was, you know, just... It was brilliantly... I wouldn't... I See, I'm having a hard time remembering the choreography. For me, it was more movement. The most extravagant um, number for me... The two that pop in my... Well, three. Uh, I've decided to marry you. When he's bouncing back between the doors.
0: Mm-hmm. Right?
1: Um, the, the number with the... Uh, major Mm -hmm. i remember there's like a tango or something in there for some reason i'm remembering a tango i could be wrong
0: i think you might be wrong
1: and then of course lady hyacinth
0: Mm -hmm.
1: there was a number and there was uh going
0: around with the fabric that's really like all i can remember but but that's what i think is beautiful about it is the choreography and the movement can't be differentiated
1: right the nobody was moving on stage without purpose That's important to know. We weren't moving just to move. Everything had a purpose behind it. And I just... Smart. Everybody on that stage, everyone behind the scenes, everyone who created the show was smart. The show was outrageously silly. The concept, silly. The story, silly. Why did it work? Because everybody behind it was smart and they knew what they were doing. That's what separates nonsense from brilliance. You can have something absolutely silly and ridiculous, but typically it's going to be written by smart people who get it, who can keep it in that sweet spot.
0: The show has had several notable performers, including Bryce Pinkerton, Jane Carr, and Jefferson Mays.
1: So let's now talk about the impact the show has had on the theater and its history. Theatrical impact. I know, I know, I know. I keep saying this, but it was a great hearkening back to the classic origins of the musical.
0: Well, and in a time where <clears throat> the big dance musical is starting to reign supreme, it gave us a text. It gave I was us in a, a big work-
1: blockbuster musical.
0: Yeah, well, it gave us. It gave us a show that is accessible for community theater.
1: Yes. And, I mean, I, I like a show that just reminds audiences where our roots are for for, for <laughs> the musical. You know, it wasn't always a jukebox. It wasn't always a blockbuster. It wasn't always from a film. This is where we we originated with this vaudeville, Gilbert and Sullivan, you know, Zeefield Follies, um george white scandals you know the reviews this is where we started the musical theater this is where the the book musical the situation show, as they used to call it came from uh the other big theatrical impact i thought was it showcased the genius of jefferson mays and i'll say it he is a genius he's a comedic genius he is a chameleon he's such a great character actor and i have such respect for him in that sense to be able to play nine different roles in one show, all distinctly different but yet somehow related. That is that is genius. Mm-hmm. That is genius. Um moving on to societal impact. So there wasn't a huge societal impact, but I mean the show opened in 2013, late 2013 going into 2014. There was a lot happening, um particularly economically um, <laughs> let's take y'all back on this one and so for me I thought it provided a social commentary of rich versus poor especially in the aftermath of the Zuccotti Park protest you know the 1% that kind of thing the fact that a lot of these people who were dice quiz were looking down and being like oh you're poor Oof, I can't marry you because you're poor you know a uh, a uh, 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 A lot of these protests were talking, I mean, they're referencing the previous centuries and whatnot about how you can't keep treating us this way. Look what's happened in the past. We're going to eventually win. And so that's the only real societal impact I could come up with. And it is a stretch. You know.
0: Right. Well, because sometimes you do have a show that really, like you said, is a love letter for the theater. And it mostly impacts the theater audience. Yep. It no- Doesn't really pull from...
1: It doesn't necessarily have to change the world or anything. It could just be fun. It could just be entertainment. And mm-hmm. that's fine. So let's ask the question. Is the show still relevant? Always. Well, while it's very clever and very funny... And I think this is a very funny show, and perfect for community college and regional theater. As for Broadway, I think it could be a fantastic, uh, as a revival, especially in the right hands, particularly the right comedic genius and chameleon, as I mentioned. It makes a perfect escape show, but that being said, I don't think now is the right time uh, for a revival of this show on Broadway. Um, This is probably best kept off-Broadway, for now,
0: this show is going to develop a cult following um, because this show is going to be done regionally and um, and in community theaters. And I want this show to be successful everywhere, but on Broadway. Because right now, I don't want to see this show unless it's with Jefferson Mays. And he's doing so many big and beautiful things that I want to see what new things come from him. Mm -hmm. And so I think that for a revival of this show, it needs to be done once Jefferson is retired, and we have a new. I like to see Jefferson direct it. That would be fun. Uh, But I would love to see someone new, the next Jefferson. I well, I think there
1: are there are already. The next Jeffersons, but I don't want to
0: see them until Jefferson's done, and that's fair.
1: I just don't think right now is the time for this show just yet.
0: I don't think it is. I think maybe
1: five more years.
0: I think we need at least another decade or two. Uh, I'd like to see
1: Jefferson direct this in about five years, with that experience and knowledge that he has, having performed it, and see what his interpretation is. York, it's remarkable, very, the name on the lamppost is unnecessary, you merely have to see the girls to know what street you're on, Fifth Avenue beauties and dear old Broadway girls, the tailor-made shoppers, the Avenue, a hey, girls, they're strictly all right, but they're different, quite in the different
0: Finally, as promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing this show.
1: So we had the good fortune of getting to see the show twice in 2014 and 2015 on Broadway. But before we get to those, I mean, I hope you saw it how many times as you were running the show at a semi-professional house in well, Salt Lake.
0: you don't get to see it when you're running it, that's for sure. You got to um, listen to it. <laughs> well, and that's I got to be a part of the show for two months um, doing wigs and facial hair just for the dice with track. I didn't do anything with anyone else except for dice with. And I mean, it was so much fun. There were there were moments that were really hard, that were very,, um, God, it took a team of three of us to do it. and that is the wig side, the dressing side, and the actor side, and occasionally a second dresser. You know, we were a team of us that we all had to work together. We had to have excellent communication, excellent trust, because oftentimes we were making 30-second quick changes, full head to toe. Mm -hmm. And there's something thrilling and exciting about that that lives with you forever. That's personally for me, that's why I enjoy doing what I do, is because I live for the thrill of the quick change And so this show definitely fed that for me. It was fun. um, And I had a really good time. And I enjoyed finding the um, little subtle moments of comedy within the show, just seeing how it changed day to day.
1: Um Switching back to Broadway now, this is the first show we ever saw at The Walks Recur.
0: Right, and that's where we experienced Satan's Armpit for the first time. It's true. <laughs> I,
1: well, and I will say for the only time, because since we've returned and we've sat up in the balcony, in the two rows that exist for the balcony, um, for The Crucible, for Hades Town, it wasn't as hot as it was for Gentleman's Guide, but I'll never forget the first time we saw it up there. My Lord, it was so
0: hot. It was so hot, I thought I was going to die. Oh,
1: and so, of course, every time we've returned to the Walter Kerr, and we've bought those seats up in the balcony because they're cheap, we've always been like, please don't let it be hot. And, and I'm sure the reason being is one, you're high up, heat rises, but all the lights that they were using, the way they were lighting the show, I'm sure there were more lights up there. Yeah, the but, lighting
0: instruments were right there. So, of course, those generate. Electricity uh, generate power, generate heat.
1: I still we enjoyed the show. I mean, I enjoyed the show, loved the escalating Listen, humor, the Listen, if we if we
0: got that much out of the show, and we were sitting in Satan's armpit, that tells you how good. And the show I is. sweat
1: in the middle of winter, so you can only imagine how uncomfortable I was then. Um, the other memory I loved is meeting Jefferson after the show both times. Just how classy he was, and how dapper he was dressed. Like the, he's the only actor I know that like. He is snazzed up for uh, the theater. Like he dresses up like it's a different time. He doesn't he
0: own a casual, like a tradition like what we think of a modern casual dress. He does not
1: the dude own was going to clothes. work at, uh, for a gentleman's guide in, in a boater hat. A full linen suit. With a bow tie and that. And I'm just thinking, are you still in character? But that's just Jefferson. Mm-hmm. And he's just a classy guy and he's very nice. Uh, signed playbills. He was just incredibly sweet and humble. He's such a gentle person off stage and it's completely different than when he's on stage and I'm grateful to him for that. I admire him for that. Um, So it's... I'm I'm happy to see the amount of success that he's had um, and he continues to have because he is just a phenomenal actor. Um, And he keeps raising the bar on what he can do. So I just... I can't wait for Chris's Carol. I can't wait to see what he does next after that. Jefferson Mays is a total seller for any show.
0: You'll be able to catch A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder sometime at a theater near you, I hope.
1: We also want to remind you that you can now become a producer and patron of the show by getting your backstage pass.
0: Information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash pod. So until next time,
1: I'm Andrew Cortez.
0: And I'm Bird.
1: Reminding you to turn off your cell phones.
0: Unwrap your candies and continue to keep your masks on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe.
1: You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at StageWhisperPod.
0: And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at StageWhisperPod at gmail.com.
1: Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Sophie Tucker and Al Jolson, Kevin McLeod and Billy Murray.